You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is my good old literary friend, Fiona Davis. Fiona has written a number of spectacular and New York Times bestselling books. Her latest story is The Spectacular, which is a book set in New York City in 1956. It tells the story of 19-year-old Marion Brooks, and a lot of different things happen to her, including an opportunity to audition for the very famous Radio City Rockettes, I will not get into more of the story just now. I will let Fiona do that a little bit later. But the conversation we lead off this podcast episode with is all about her deep, deep love of the theater and her initial career as an actress. Um, we get into a lot of the research she did for the Radio City Rockettes, which is something that, Emily, I really only think about during the holidays when you see them at New Year's Eve and during Christmas time doing their extremely famous leg kicks. There's so much more that goes into them, and it is a fascinating story. Uh, we get into the different aspects of the theater and how they connect to the ways that she writes her story, which is a lot of fun. I really, really love this conversation. Uh, Fiona is someone that I've interviewed a number of times, and it was great to reconnect with her. In keeping with the themes of the whole New York cityness of this particular episode, I want to give you a book recommendation, which is The Gargoyle Hunters by John Freeman Gill. This is very, very funny, and it's very, very poignant. It came out uh, way back in 2017, and if you can still find the hardcover copy, it has deckled edges, which if you're a book lover, you know exactly how exciting that is. This is a, a love letter, really, to a disappearing version of New York City, but it's also a very, very emotional story between a father and a son. It wrestles with New York City's uh, constant relationship with time and how the city itself is ever-changing and never truly, quote-unquote, complete. And it also circles around a story of an architectural heist where these people were stealing aspects of gigantic buildings. They were quite literally taking gargoyles off of buildings. This is something that was actually happening in New York City in the 1970s. A delightful story. I think you're absolutely going to love it. That's The Gargoyle Hunters by John Freeman Gill. I do want to thank everybody who has reached out to me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I absolutely love hearing the things that you're passionate about. It's super interesting to me. And everybody who sends me all of your you know, things that you're passionate about or requests for book recommendations, I kind of take all those and I pick one random person to send a bookshop.org gift card to every single month. So thanks so much for doing that. It really means a lot to me. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, that is just about all the housekeeping. You can always find me on Instagram and TikTok at Passions and Prologues. Be sure to check in with me there. I love doing book recommendations and all sorts of fun stuff, but I'm not going to keep you any longer. I'm going to let you get to this delightful conversation with Fiona Davis, author of The Spectacular on Passions and Prologues. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.
Okay, Fiona, what is something you are super passionate about that we're going to discuss today? The my main passion, other than writing books, of course, is the theater. To be honest, I was a complete theater geek in high school, and I was in plays, and I, I actually went to theater school after college. And I, you know, and since I've been here in New York, my I love going to see theater. I love it's just is such a a joy. It's kind of book adjacent. But it's not because theater is its own thing. It's so collaborative. It's, you know, just a, an art form all its own. That's it, it, To me, it's just shocking that you see a play and how great it is. And you realize all the pieces that went into creating that play. I, what makes a good one and what makes a bad one. Yeah, this is fantastic. So I also am a giant theater nerd. Actually, I, I tell people uh, a fun fact about Cleveland, where I live, is we, outside of New York City, we so we have the second largest theater district in the country outside of New York City. So anytime something goes on tour, we always get first-run stuff. So like we were one of the first cities that got like Hamilton, for example, or you know just like anything that you can think of, we get first, which is really great. But I also have always sort of had this lifelong thing. So when did you first discover your love of the theater? Like what was the your first experiences you can remember? You know, that's a really good question. We, we lived in New Jersey, but we didn't really go in to see theater when I was a young, young kid. And I think it was more that in high school, I felt very confused as to where I fit in. It was a really big football high school. Mm-hmm. You're a football player, you're a cheerleader. And I just didn't fit in at all. And then I found the theater department and it was just kind of a lark of, well, I'll go and audition for something. And then I kind of started working behind the scenes and seeing all the seniors who were so cool and they were acting away. And so I think I just got drawn into it naturally that way of just um, not necessarily seeing something, but just wanting to be part of a team and thinking, well, maybe this might be my team. Do you remember, because I, I felt the same way, I, I'm the youngest of four and my brother, my two sisters, they didn't really do theater in high school, but they had friends who didn't. I remember being like eight or nine years old and watching these people that came to my house all the time as my sister's friends. They did. I remember Godspell was like the first thing I remember seeing that um, one of my sister's best friends, his name is Taylor Chapel. Don't know if he's going to hear this, but I loved him. So he was like, he was one of those people when I was eight or nine, he was this like high schooler who actually came over and like talked to me and was so nice. And he played Jesus in Godspell. And I remember being like, just uh-huh. distraught. Spoiler alert for anyone who's ever read the Bible or seen Godspell, but Jesus <laughs> dies at the end. Um, and like, I remember like sobbing and, and like just being like, oh my gosh, like that was the moment that I realized I was like, wow, I, I get this, like a light bulb went off. And so then the same thing, I, I went to a very small high school and so I got to do sports and theater, but I still remember like to this day, the first shows we were a part of. So what were, what were the shows that do you yeah. remember what you guys were doing? Oh with? yeah. I mean, the first one that I saw them do my freshman year was Blythe Spirit, mm-hmm. you know, Madame Arcati and the seance and all that. And, and it was just so brilliant. I just couldn't, they were so funny mm-hmm. and broad, you know, I thought it was great. And then my second year I auditioned for The Miracle Worker mm-hmm. and I got the role of Annie Sullivan, the teacher. And, and it was just great because the, the girl, Angela Badiato, I hope maybe she's listening. She played <laughs> Helen Keller 
And, you know, there's that fight scene in the middle of it where it's like a five minute scene where they're fighting around a dining room table. Mm-hmm. And it's like a real knockdown fight as Helen's trying to get away and, and, you know, the teacher's trying to get her to understand. And we went off and did it in this competition, like some drama competition. And it was just incredible. And so that was one of the very first ones. Um, and then I made my parents start coming into New York. And so then we saw The Real Thing with Glenn Close and um, uh, that cast, Cynthia Nixon was mm-hmm. like a girl in that cast. And I remember yeah. thinking, wow, look at that. Um, and so, yeah, and Pirates of Penzance, like it was just, it was incredible. So did you guys do IRX? I really remember this, like for as long as my school was open, I was actually the last graduating class in our school before it closed. But like for as long as it was open, we did a, uh, there was a, a play in the fall and then a musical in the spring. Like that was just like clockwork. And so I can still remember all the ones that we did where it was like Cinderella and there was this uh, very strange play called Noises Off, which oh, yeah. in the theater, people know what it is, but people who haven't, if you try to explain it to them, it's very hard. It's um, such a yeah. Yeah, and like, don't drink the water. So like, do you remember, was it, um, were you guys doing exclusively plays or was there like different things depending on the time of year? It, we did, I think it was around seven plays a year. It was, oh, wow. well, we had two drama teachers. And in fact, one, uh, Mr. Moran is still, he comes to some of my book readings if I'm down in New Jersey. He's lovely. And um, and so we we did, you know, like three in the first semester and then four in the second. Um, we did pajama games, um, um, our town. Mm. It was, you know, there were, there were so many and it was great because it meant that you could act in some, but then you had to work behind the scenes in others yeah. and, and really, you know, help with the sets and, or be in the chorus dancing along. Mm-hmm. It was, it was just a, you know, I, I still remember the way it was when the cast list went up on the office door in the mm-hmm. theater. It was like, oh. So when did you know that you wanted to, like you said, you, try to make this a career? Like, when did you say, okay, I, I'm going to go to acting school and I'm going to try and make this a thing? Like, how, what was that process like? I kind of slid into it. <laughs> I can't, I, that's what I seem to do. I just slide into wherever I'm headed next. Like I, I was in college and I, I did a few plays there. Um, and then a friend of mine who was a year older, she got into this program called Circle in the Square. Mm-hmm. which is an acting program here in New York. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll audition for that because that's what Linda did. So I guess mm-hmm. that's what I'll try. And I got, a, I got waitlisted. And then the week before the, it was supposed to start, I got a call saying, okay, someone dropped out so you can come. So I suddenly was like, all right, I'm moving to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and did that for a couple of years. And, you know, I have to say, like, I'm, I'm an okay actress. I'm, I, like I do Shakespeare and, you know, mm-hmm. I was Manager and manager in our town, and I'm very, you know, I'm a solid actress. But you need more than that. You need to be raw. You need to really expose yourself. And I could never quite do that. Mm-hmm. Having English parents just, you know, kind of <laughs> stunted me a little bit in a good way. Um, and so, you know, as as I was an actress, it was a lot of fun, and I did it for ten years. But I could see that there are people who are just so good. Mm-hmm. And it it and I was not that, and so it was a real you know come to Jesus moment of speaking of Jesus of um you know okay 
what what do you want to do? And it, but what's great about it is you can still go on appreciating it the rest of mm-hmm. your life. I love going to the theater. I love you know watching other people work and just being blown away by what they do. I was just gonna I was gonna ask with so much experience in that space. Like I I like to talk of having interviewed authors for like a decade now. At this point, I when I get people that ask me for book recommendations. I find sometimes I almost get too nuanced when I'm giving them those. And they're just like, I just want to know if it's a thriller or a mystery. And I'm like, meanwhile, it's eight minutes later and I'm still <laughs> describing the plot. Um, but when you go to the theater, having the experience that you do and having spent so much time in it, do you pick up on little nuances or I guess, do you pay attention to things that maybe the casual theater goer wouldn't? You know what it is? When it's not working, I try and figure out why. Mm-hmm. You know, like I start getting very analytical about what is it? Is it the blocking? Is it the script? Is it the acting? And just try to pull apart what's not working. I find when something's working well, I'm so lost in it. I can't analyze it. Um, and so it's, I think it's a, just a little more of a critical eye to, to it when it, when it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Are there types of stories you are drawn to, you know, like, thinking if, if for people that are thinking about musicals, like there's giant spectacles and there's, you know, revivals of old shows and there's really like quiet, small stories like once, which is one of my favorite musicals wow. ever. Like, are there, are there shows or I guess types of shows you find yourself drawn to that, you know, like this is kind of your wheelhouse thing that you want to enjoy? Yeah. You know, I, I do love Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it here in New York. You have Shakespeare in the park where they, put on a show in the middle of Central Park in this beautiful outdoor theater. And you're sitting there and it gets darker and darker and the lights come up and there'll be a raccoon crossing the stage at some point, you know, or a hawk will fly over or at, at behind it, there's a pond. And then there's this castle on a cliff called Belvedere Castle mm-hmm. and they'll light it. So, you know, you're watching these people act as if they're in Henry V. And then there's a castle in the distance. That's just perfect. And and for me, I love Shakespeare because at the end of a number of his of his comedies, especially, he'll have two lost souls find reunite, mm-hmm. and there's that moment that just gives you the chills when a father finds his daughter, or a husband finds his wife, or a sister finds her brother. Um, it's just it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that. But then you know I'm more into plays than musicals, although I have to say Hamilton and Once. Yeah, just beyond anything. Yeah, I to me, I'm always blown away, especially with plays, even more so than I mean, musicals. There's obviously tons of emotion depending on what you're seeing, but I feel like there's this strange thing I always think about when I'm watching musicals and I see these huge emotional scenes. I almost am more impressed when I'm watching a play and I see a huge emotional scene because, like in my mind, the music has an there's like an aspect of emotion, like we're so moved. Our emotions are so moved by the music we're hearing. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, the actors can play off that to like move themselves to, to emotions. But then, you know, if I'm watching something like Death of a Salesman or something where there's like huge emotions mm-hmm. and I'm always, I find myself just being blown away because I, I don't know why, but specifically for being, for watching theater, I can't take myself out of the moment enough. To, like I, what blows my mind is I'm always like, they do this eight times a week. Like that's all that goes through my head the whole time. And I, like, I don't know, to me, I think that's the, my, the thing that is always most impressive to me is how 
consistent they have to be for so long. Right. Because you see them on a movie set and, you know, they get worked up and there's some great emotional scene and then it's done and they never have to do it again. And then you have people doing it eight, eight shows a week and having to hit that every time. It's, it really is remarkable. And, and it's hard. You know, I, the longest show I ever did ran for 111 performances on Broadway. And it was a real ensemble. So it wasn't like I was on the stage the whole time. Yeah. But it, and it was really hard because when you've said something over and over and you've heard it, there'll be a point where you're sitting there and you're going, wait, have we done that part already? Mm-hmm. Like you space out and you start thinking, well, what do I want for dinner? And you're, you're still acting, but you're thinking about something else. It's so hard to stay in that moment. Yeah. And, no, I, and it's so interesting you say that. I've actually, I saw this uh, video recently where they were talking about uh, some, some musical artists and they were saying the same thing. Like he, beforehand, they were talking about a, a song that they were working on. And then he went out and did like a two hour show. And then he came back and the first thing he said to the person off stage was like, I thought of how I want to end that song. And like my initial thought was like, how are you able to do that? But like you said, when someone's on stage every single night, especially for, for plays and musicals, like you said, where they're doing the same thing every single time, it's almost like you just go, you go through the motions, quote unquote, but that you're able, to, I feel like you said, I feel like that's where else so much of the talent comes for these people because they can sort of do that like matinee situation, but they're still giving all of themselves. They can just also separate their mind into thinking about dinner or whatever it might be. Right. 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 Exactly. It's it was it really is a an amazing art form. And it's been around for, you know, so long. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about the magic of watching people recreate something on stage, even though you know it's fake. Mm-hmm. Yet it's real because they're bringing themselves to it and the words are beautiful or the set's gorgeous. And then suddenly you're, you're just lost in the moment. Yeah. And I always, the, the one thing that really I enjoy most about theater is it's a sing and it's the same thing with like concerts, but it's a singular moment that, you know, there will be something in your viewing of this play that won't happen the next yeah. night. It'll be, like you said, it'll be a choice or it'll be, Away and like we might not even know it as audience members because we're only seeing one example of it. But the the actors they know whether it's like giving another actor a you know a, a different ri- a line read or something mm-hmm. like that. Like I so I do really enjoy that. Like knowing there's like a snapshot of a moment that will never happen again. I really do enjoy that. Right, right, and it and I think so many people are used to watching screens, mm-hmm. and and so you forget. Oh right, I'm here with these actual people. They're right there in front of me. It's it's incredible. So so I'm interested to know if your experience in the theater relates at all to your writing process. You know, people who are familiar with your work, which is a lot of people, uh, they'll know you. A lot of your stories are set in New York City. You know, the Lions Fifth Avenue, and of course the the newest book, The Spectacular, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Like. A lot of your stories are surrounding New York, which is, of course, where you you live and where kind of theater makes its home, I suppose. But do you think there's a connection between your love of theater and how you go about the process of telling your own stories? It's such a good question. And first of all, thank you for being an early supporter of my books <laughs> from right at the beginning. So yeah, of course. I truly appreciate that. Um, and And yeah, for sure, I think... There's a theatrical aspect to a, 
a lot of my books. And, you know, there's one that's set on Broadway because I just wanted to explore that and, and see what it was like from an outsider's point of view to see if I could make what happens on the stage come alive in mm. a book. Um, and, and then just in terms of writing, I think when I'm working on a scene with a lot of characters, you really need to stage direct it. You need to make sure the blocking works so that it doesn't feel like a muddle and so that actors are doing something that's maybe active to, or the, the characters are doing something active that shows what they're thinking inside. Like either slamming down a glass or, you know, and that helps just feed it. And that comes from having been on stage and having to make choices, I think, as an actor. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you're, when you are writing out a scene in your mind, are you sort of, like you say, kind of blocking it? Because it's not, you know, for people who may not be familiar, when you get a script for a play, it will literally say like, so-and-so actor, like, you know, the famous one is, you know, exit stage pursued by a bear, but like, they literally will tell you where you need to go. So are you, you're, you're thinking through those things when you're writing your scenes? Yeah, sure. It's almost like I'm watching a play. Mm-hmm. I had of these actors, I'm thinking of like, a, there's a big scene in the Magnolia Palace where there's a reading of the will and there's all the family in the room and the, the lawyer. And I really had to picture it as a play, as if I'm facing the room and here's the fourth wall and Here's where they're seated and she should rise at this point. Um, yeah, it's like directing. Yeah. Are, are there other things that you think about from a theater standpoint that go into to writing? The the one that I'm that people will probably know the most famous one is Chekhov's gun. And like the point of Chekhov's gun is you put a gun on a stage in act one, it needs to go off at some point in the show. Um do you think there are things like that for writing novels as well. Do you think that way when you're telling your stories? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, in in, in one book, there's a, a letter mm-hmm. that, you, that you know the characters should not leave out, that that letter should be hidden. And it's left out in the same way Chekhov's gun is because you need a plot twist to move the story forward and that letter will be it. And so you just plant something in the in the reader's mind of, oh no, just plant a little tension and a little worry, and then that will pay off later, big time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of mysteries and things paying off later, your, your new book, The Spectacular, is there's a lot of mystery and there's a lot of uh, harrowing things going on that's based on some real stuff. So can you kind of give my audience an introduction to the new book and where the ideas came from? Sure. So it's set at Radio City Music Hall, and it's from the point of view of an up-and-coming Rockette named Marion in 1956. And she goes against her father's, father's wishes to audition to be a Rockette. And then, you know, in, in my stories, as I research, I like to find something that actually happened in that decade to kind of ground and anchor the story. And in my research, I found there's this guy named the Mad Bomber who was terrorizing New York, setting bombs at all famous places like the library or, you know, Grand Central, he hit Rockefeller Center, or he hit Radio City Music Hall twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they used, they caught him using criminal profiling for the very first time. And I thought, that's incredible. So I have Miriam for very personal reasons, wanting to track down this mad bomber, who in my book, I call the Big Apple Bomber. Mm-hmm. And so she teams up with a brilliant, but very introverted psychiatrist to help solve the puzzle. And they're a mismatch. So it's a bit of romance, a bit of thriller, a bit of mystery, and hopefully a really fun ride. 
Yeah. And so one thing I want to clarify for people, like when you're talking about this bomber that kind of terrorized New York, it was like like a decade and a half or something. It was an absurd amount of time, right? 16 years. Yeah. Yes, 16 years. And he set off 33 bombs and 15 injured people, some seriously. Yes, and no one's heard of it. That was so yeah. what? Honestly, what, that was the thing. Like when I saw your new book, that, because I know that you like to put like things from actual the actual past in there, I was like, wait a minute, that feels so specific. I mean, and I looked it up and sure enough, I was like, oh my, I did not know that either. It's, yeah, that's an insane story. But um, yeah, I'm curious about, you know, we we're talking about blocking scenes and things, but I feel like this book has so much, there's, there's so many different things in the plot that, you know, all work so seamlessly together. And, and I'm wondering, like, did you, was there a challenge for you to make all this work? Like you said, there's, you know, the famous Music City Radio, you know, Music uh, Hall, like Radio City Music Hall, and there's the Rockettes, and then there's like psychological profiling, and there's romance. Like, how do you go about taking on a story that has so much in it? Like, I guess, how do you approach that? Yeah, you know what, this one is a little different because a lot of my books are dual timeline. Mm -hmm. And this one I decided to really focus in 1956 with just a couple, a few chapters that are in the 1990s of this Rockette looking back at her life. But the main crux of it is in one timeline. And because of that, I could weave more into that story. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and in, in many ways, the theme of both storylines, both Marion's struggle and then the capture of the, of the mad bomber are really about, you know, when do you conform? If, if you're in a precision dance kick line, you mm-hmm. have to be exactly like everybody else. And so when do you kind of pull away your own individuality or creativity in order for the greater good? Mm-hmm. And so that's the theme that kind of runs through the, the whole book in that way that hopefully pulls together all those threads. Yeah. Um, I have a potentially silly question, but uh, why the Rockettes? Like, why, what made you want to write about them? You know, I had not considered it at all. But mm-hmm. as I was finishing up one book, I got this email through my author website. And it was a woman saying, I'm in my 80s. I'm a former Rockette. And if you want to know all the secrets of Radio City Music Hall, you should call me. And so I called her. Her name's Sandy. She was brilliant. And she, she remembered so much in so much detail and had, uh, you know, archival material that I could, that she FedEx to me so I could use it as, as my research. And, and so it was all from Sandy because I would never have considered it. The, the Rockettes are, intimidate the heck out of me. There is just, yeah. you know, I'm not a dancer by any means. Uh, but she made it sound just come alive. And, and the idea of the sisterhood of these, all these women who in the 50s, when you had to be a nurse or a secretary or a teacher, were, you know, dancing on stage, independent living on their own, you know, free to do what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And so since then, after that, I talked to a number of Rockettes. Some were there in the 40s, some were there just recently, and just learned so many fun things that, that, that I thought, oh, I have to do it. And that is incredible. I, I've only heard of like one other example of an author getting like, sort of like being told an idea that's almost too good to be true like that. And it was, um, it was Alice Hoffman. We were talking about her book, The World That We Knew, which is this book. Uh, it's it's set like during the Holocaust and it's very, there's a lot of magic in it because it's Alice Hoffman. But it was sort of the same thing. She, I remember her telling me, she's like, I was doing a book tour and this woman came up to me and said, I have a story that's going to, you know, it's going to be your next book. And she's like, I, I'm sure you do. I get that all the time. I'm Alice Hoffman. Like, and she told her the story about her, basically like her grandmother who somehow survived through like a series of people basically just like 
passing her off at the last second before the Nazis. And so she's like, I had to write this story. It's like, I'm just imagining you being like, if I want to learn anything about the rock, like that had to be such a joyful email to get. Yes. Yes, it was. Because I was struggling. I wasn't sure, you know, I really wasn't sure what to do. I, uh-huh. and I couldn't find a building that would work. Mm-hmm. And the minute I found that, I, I thought, oh yeah, this, I have to do it. Because I mean, everyone wants to be a rock cat. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and it's, it is, it's, they're so glamorous and I feel like the, like most people would see them in like, you see them on like the, you know, thanks, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And then you see them like during New Year's Eve and like, but like you said, there's just, it's flawless and they all look perfect. And yeah, just that idea of, I wouldn't even know how, how you would even go about like auditioning for that. You know, it's like so un, like, Yes, connected from the rest of the world. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was it was just and there's so many fun scenes to write. You know, the audition scene, the scene, the first time she's on stage. There's so many fun things to unpack. Yeah. I'm curious if you would ever consider writing plays because of your background. And obviously it's such a different style of writing, but is that something you've ever considered? You know, I I think it would be amazing to do that. It's so hard, I think. To write a play, because all you have is dialogue. You can't get inside a character's head and, you know, explain what's going on. You have to do it all in dialogue. So to me, it would be, it would be a real challenge Mm -hmm. to be able to do that. But, you know, at the same time, I've read so many plays that I understand why they work and why they don't. I think it'd be great. And there's some wonderful modern playwrights right now that are doing just great, great things. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, maybe down the road, give myself a little challenge. I, I, yeah. Wow. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe. <laughs> what is, um, what's the, the best play you've seen, you know, in the last, I don't know, six months or so? Like what's something that really stood out to you? Oh gosh, there's been so much. Um, there's one called Cost of Living mm. um, by a, a relatively new playwright. And it's a four person play. And um, uh, two of the actors are, are disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, in in real life and on stage, and it's it's such a beautiful love story, and it, it's just this beautiful. The cost of living. It's it won the Pulitzer. It's yeah. that good. And um, so if it comes to your anyone's neighborhood out there, be sure to see it. It's it's a remarkable piece of writing and acting. Yeah. Um. So that's amazing, and I am absolutely going to check that out. I. I always end my conversations by asking the author who is joining me for a recommendation of any kind. It can be uh, a book. It can be a specific play like you just gave. Like, what is something that you think more people should know about that perhaps they don't? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. Gosh, gosh, gosh. Um, I would say it's kind of a general one, but check out your regional theater. Yeah. Because every city has usually has a great, great theater. There's the Globe in San Diego, the Alley in Houston, and they do incredible work. So if you just want something different from your typical night of Netflix, mm-hmm. go see play at your regional theater because they're they're the great actors, they're great artistic directors, great designers, and and you can really be surprised. I will say, anyone listening in Cleveland, we have the Great Lakes. Theater, you know, the Shakespeare Theater Company. And 
famously uh tom hanks used to do that so you could always you might be seeing the next tom hanks who knows that's right exactly <laughs> oh well, well the spectacular is exactly that it is spectacular it is so wonderful and like i, I told you before we started recording Having gotten to do several interviews with you over the years, I was so excited when your name came into my email inbox. And this was just a blast. Fiona, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Adam. This was a treat. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.